Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 2 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences I say, Wellington, this case file involves your favorite person, Dr. Josepha Blackwell. Oh, lovely. Let me have a look. Hmm. Hmm. What is it, Wellington? While I find Dr. Blackwell a bit of an odd duck, this case file is amazingly well-written, very concise and very clear for a junior agent. Oh, what? Don't worry. It was very brief. Apparently, the good doctor's foray into field work proved most unsatisfactory. By strange coincidence, her mission was to New Zealand. I do hope she wasn't involved with anything explosive. That's my job, after all. No, but I do believe her personal grooming suffered. The Tanifa of Anna Cove by Lewis Hoban It's hard to avoid getting mud all over your shoes if you choose to trek through the backwoods that cover the vast majority of Kaipara, New Zealand. Your shoes unavoidably get covered with an odd combination of sand and mud when you walk across the coastlines, and no matter how you try to wipe them on the rocks, they still manage to smother the soles. Eventually it crawls into the small holes that come into existence after much usage of said shoes, and ultimately you end up with cold, wet and sticky feet. Dr. Josepha Blackwell was currently experiencing that particular delight. Her leather hiking boots were covered in mud and sand, along with dead leaves, grass and what appeared to be the head or tail, the part in question was arguable at the time, of a common garden worm. She grumbled as she quickly scraped off the majority of it with a stick while sitting on a stump. Eh, women, said her associate with a chuckle, who was leaning next to a nearby tree. Dr Blackwell whipped her head around, scowling. And just what is that supposed to mean, Mr Scarth? The man smirked. I've had my fair share of ladies like you, Miss Blackwell. Most of them ended up on the opposite side of my bed. Blackwell cringed at the mere thought of such an occurrence. But they all had the same... uh, quirks, as most ladies from your city do. Blackwell stood, trying not to notice the crunch beneath her foot she had nearly finished cleaning, which had most likely been a daddy long legs. Her glasses shone with the morning sun, almost hiding her eyes and replacing them with a white-hot glow. Meaning? Oh, for one, you're awfully fussy about your hair. Even though she resented the fact, it was true. Days earlier, she had almost thumped the captain of her ship, after not allowing her to bring her many brushes and combs with her on the voyage. Blackwell's hair was usually fine and luxurious, but not pampering it daily resulted in a mess of tangles, knots and those large clumps that refused to mould to her desired shape, no matter how much she flattened, pushed and prodded. One of the kitchen staff jokingly offered the leftover grease from this morning's early breakfast as a makeshift hair cream, but she declined. Hair smelling of bacon fat was a most undesirable factor for a woman of her stature. Secondly, your hygiene habits are haywire. Who spent an entire 17 minutes on that one boot? muttered Mr Scarth, 
gesturing to the considerably cleaner boot. I mean, it's a boot. It's not even touching your flesh. So you don't even feel what's under it. How is that a worry? Blackwell pinched her nose, fighting back a building headache. We got up a good few minutes from midnight. We walked through a damp, muddy jungle for God knows how long. I believe I have the right to be fussy. She felt like stamping her foot. As a matter of fact, what the blazes do you mean by lost valuable time? If you're up an entire six or seven hours before daybreak, I'd consider that more than enough. Mr. Scarth just beamed. And finally, third, you tend to lose your temper a bit too easily. Dr. Blackwell blushed and collected a coat. Not to worry, miss. I've taken much worse lip, Scarth laughed, standing up and dusting himself off. Shall we continue? he said, gesturing towards the large expanse of thick bush. I believe the rule is, ladies first. They arrived at the camp after another hour of merciless hiking. It was heavily covered by dense layer of tree branches, making it virtually invisible from an airship, aside from the occasional glimmer of a yellow tent material reflecting in the scorching sun. There were exactly 17 tents, as Dr Blackwell had counted, in an effort to take her mind off the horrible pain in her feet. In the centre of the area was a cooking pot sitting over a fire, a few seats, and several men dressed in navy blue trench coats who seemed to be idling around. As Scarth approached them, however, they snapped erect and saluted. At ease, gentlemen, he muttered, giving them a reassuring wave, barely looking up from the path he was following. They continued until they reached a tent that was slightly larger than the others. At the moment they set their foot near it, they heard a loud bang, a screech, and someone cry out, Bollocks! Should we really be going in there? asked Blackwell, gingerly pointing at the tent door, which was now releasing a sort of damp smell. I assure you everything is fine. Mr. Cambrum's experiments are nothing to worry about. If they were that dangerous, this camp would have been burned to the ground months ago. Scarth opened the tent door and they entered. Inside was a smouldering rowboat, a few pieces of machinery, a spilled bucket of water and a very frustrated-looking man wearing goggles with oil on his hands. Oh, that went as well as I thought it would go, he grumbled to himself. Mr. Scarth cleared his throat and the man spun around. He had grimy red hair and eyebrows that appeared to have been singed more than once. Oh, uh, sir, the man said, pushing up his goggles with one hand while saluting with the other. At ease. Uh, Dr. Blackwell, I would like to introduce you to Mr. Albert Cambrum, our resident tinker, said Scarth. Nice to meet you, madam, said Cambrum, who shook her hand vigorously. Blackwell examined her glove, then wiped it with a tissue she took from her pocket. This Cambrum person spoke with a deep Australian accent. Forgive me for being nosy, Mr. Cambrum, but what exactly are you doing? She asked, peering over the man's shoulder. He turned to face the wreck. Ah, oh, yes, well, we need to find ways to cross the waterway faster, so I'm trying to design an engine for rowboats that converts the water around the boat into steam power, then rotates the paddles which are connected to hinges. He grimaced at the singed boat. As you can see, it's not going so well. Well, I'm afraid you'll have to put your experiment on hold, chuckled Scarf. Sir? questioned Cameron with a frown. You have a new assignment. You are to first row Dr. Blackwell to Anna Cove, then accompany her as she carries out her task. You are the only one who can successfully navigate its violent waters. Cameron's eyes widened, as did Blackwell's, slightly horrified by the thought of spending a long boat ride with this mad inventor. You both leave in five minutes. The boat is ready, said Scarf. As he left, he turned back and smirked. Owen, try not to die. Half an hour later, Dr. Blackwell and Mr. Cambrum were out in the middle of the lake. Neither of them had said a single word since they left the shoreline. Cambrum broke the silence by asking what a girl like her was doing in New Zealand. 
To be blunt, even I don't know the exact cause of this mission, said Blackwell, screwing up her nose as a samfly buzzed past her. A mission, madam, asked Cambrim, obviously intrigued. Blackwell sighed. If you must know, I work for the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, a special agency based in England which deals with, well, peculiar cases. Cambrim's eyes were wide once more. We deal with things out of the ordinary, she explained further. Apparently women have been disappearing from nearby colonies and has to do with some sort of animal. Well, my interest is in exotic fauna, so they said it would be... Blackwell cleared her throat. <clears throat> right up my alley, apparently. They have given me two instructions. Find whatever is causing the problem and stop it at all costs. Cameron grinned. Well, you couldn't have picked a better place to find more exotic fauna than at New Zealand. <laughs> For one, they have giant walking birds. Dr. Blackwell's own eyes widened. Walking birds? Are you being funny, Mr. Cameron? He looked amused. They're called mowers. Taller than a fully grown man, bloody small wings. It's some sort of monster with feathers. I've never seen one myself, but apparently Maori, uh, the island natives, say they live in the deepest part of the bush still. So the women are being kidnapped by a giant predatory bird? No, no, I assure you. Reports say the mowers are vegetarians. So who's taken the women? asked Dr Blackwell as they passed a group of jagged rocks. Well, we don't honestly know, but we have found trails of blood that led to the island and sometimes even limbs. Cameron cringed as he said the word. He fell silent and his smile faded. Is there something wrong? questioned Blackwell. Cambrim swallowed. One of the women that was taken was Gwyneth, my wife. Blackwell was taken aback. I had loved her since I first saw her, he smiled softly. She smelled a butterscotch. We married a few weeks after meeting and she came with me when I was requested. She went off to walk one night. The next morning we found one of her hands half buried in the sand. Cameron took a moment to collect himself. She had her wedding ring on that hand. He paused and wiped his eyes. I miss her every day. Since then I've sworn to get the bottom of this mystery. He sniffed and shook his head. Oh, you should reach shore in a few moments. With that they were silent again. They reached shore just as long as Cameron had said it would take, prior to narrowly avoiding yet more sharp rocks and a foaming rapid. As they began to walk into the wild forest, Cameron spoke up again, his sorrow masked with the appearance of happiness. You know, there's a bit of law that goes with this place. Pardon? said Blackwell, turning her head, a bit startled as she had gotten used to the silence. Law. It's like a story, a myth. I'm perfectly aware of what a story is, Blackwell snapped. I just need you to tell me what this particular one is. As they walked, Cameron did as asked and related to Blackwell the cove's history. It was once said to be connected to the land, but one day a beast called a Tanifar moved into a cave. Tanifar are a mythical giant beast that kind of resembles shark-like lizards, but the size of whales, walk on two feet, snatch people up with human hands, has teeth that glimmer like pearls and produces a protruding brow. The Tanifar dug below the surface and caused water to flow, separating the coves from the rest of the island. One day, three sisters went out to pick berries on a shore near the cove. One of the sisters was particularly beautiful. The Tanifar caused havoc on their walk back and the sisters fled. The Tanifar caught the sisters one by one, trying to capture the most beautiful one. On succeeding, he then took her back to his cave. Many years passed and the woman bore the Tanifar six sons, with three like their father and three fully human. While the Tanifar slept, she taught her human sons the art of war, helping them to fashion and use weapons. 
The human sons then cast their three Tenifar brothers into a bottomless pit by threatening them with spears and snuck their mother away on a canoe made of flax. When the Tanifar awoke, 70 years was past. He was furious and turned his three human sons into fish as punishment. They swam away and were caught by a fisherman and eaten. He went looking for the mother, but she'd passed away due to old age. Some say he still lingers in his cave, occasionally going out to snatch up another beautiful woman, thinking that they had a mother come back to life. But when he asks them and they say they're not the mother, he eats them. Most interesting, Blackwell said, tilting her head. Most gruesome. <laughs> Fortunately, it's just a myth chuckled Cameron. But whatever more he had to say on the matter remained unsaid when suddenly they heard a roar. It sounded like a bear. A very, very big bear. The wind changed. Cameron turned to Blackwell, blinked and then took off running into the cave. Mr. Cameron, get back at here at once. Without you I can't leave the island. Come back, Blackwell called after him. But he had already vanished inside. Realising there was no turning back now, Blackwell entered the cave after him. Beside a few cracks in the cave ceiling letting in daylight, it was pitch black. It was also quite damp. She could taste salt in her mouth. Blackwell didn't want to be there. She wanted to be back in London, on Rose Street, where there was a baker that baked the most aromatic bread and the smell of it filled the air. Not here, but down a cove, a cold, wet, dark cave system which smelt of rotting fish and seaweed. As soon as she found that swine camber and Blackwell thought to herself, she was going to yank him back out and make him row her back to shore. Of course, then the ministry would have had her in shackles if she didn't complete her task. Perhaps she would kill the animal first with a pistol in her coat pocket. No, her own two hands were for making her walk through this dark cave. Blackwell smiled at the thought, then remembered where she was and anger rose again. She heard a splash behind her. She turned. Cameron, is that you? Come out here at what? She never finished her sentence. She saw something move out of the darkness. Was it the beast? It walked on all fours, then shifted onto its hind legs. It was dripping with water. Blackwell let out an unintentional scream. Then a familiar voice came from the dark. Miss Blackwell? The human shape lumbered forward, revealing the face of Mr. Scarf. But there was something wrong with him, dreadfully wrong with him. His brow jaunted forward, away from his face. His eyes were wild. His skin had turned from its usual stark white to dark maroon. His mouth was widened, so it reached his ears and contained pearly white jagged teeth. And if she wasn't mistaken, Blackwell could see a forked tongue hands clasped over her mouth. So you learn my secret, he said with a devilish grin, walking more forward into the light. His shape was even more terrifying and inhuman than before. His arms were elongated, almost reaching to his feet. His fingers were webbed and outstretched, re revealing fingernails that could be easily mistaken for claws. On his hunchback sat a dorsal fin and his shirt was missing, revealing bits of skin that had been replaced by green-brown scales. I never wanted you to see me like this, he said, his grin growing disturbingly wider. Blackwell stumbled backwards. Her face was white. Uh, uh, are you what is stealing the women? No, I just lure them here for father, he muttered, as if he was looking back on a nostalgic memory. I hire men to come here with their families with the promise of high pay. Then I steal away their wives. Oh, what fun it is to see the look on their faces. <laughs> kind of like the one you have on now. Of course, sometimes I get hungry from the blood rush and eat a few bits myself, but it's not important right now. He chuckled, his grin growing wider still. It almost took up his entire face. It's impossible to get a woman to come here by themselves. But when I heard that a woman wanted to come here alone, he leaned forwards, making Blackwell stumble further backwards. That was an offer too good to refuse. He laughed, and it sounded like sandpaper against his throat. His soaked hand slithered across her face and clutched her chin. She couldn't react. She was paralyzed by fear. Yes, 
You look identical to her, Miss Blackwell. Uh, aside from a few unsightly blemishes, a mirror image. Blackwell could swear she saw fire burning inside his eyes. Yes, when our human brothers threw us into the pit, I managed to hold on to the edge, and they didn't even notice. Suddenly, Scarth was hit over the head by a paddle, and he fell to the ground. The owner of the paddle, Mr. Cambrum, yelled at him. Get away from her, you abomination! Scarth hissed and lunged at Cambrum. They both fell to the ground once more. Scarth was attempting to bite his neck with those elongated teeth. Cameron was only barely holding him away, using his paddle as a barrier. Miss Blackwell, snap out of it, help me! Blackwell wanted to help, but she was still frozen. As she watched Scarth snap his teeth, she imagined what would happen if Cameron was killed. Miss Blackwell, help me! What would happen to her? What would happen to the others in the colonies? Her arm shifted towards the coat pocket. She felt her weapon beneath the fabric. Snap out of it, you bloody cow! Those words brought her back to reality. She pulled out her pistol. How dare you, she screeched and fired. The bullet passed through Scarth's leg. The creature cried out in pain, falling to the floor once again, and Cambrum went at it with his paddle, hitting him over and over again. He started crying as he hit. Long minutes passed. Finally, Blackwell's hand on his shoulder stopped him. Cambrum, Albert, it's over. He stopped, looking at the corpse and dropping the paddle from his fingers. The sound echoed throughout the caverns. The beast's eyes no longer contained fire. In fact, they looked like they'd frozen over. He took my wife, he said, his voice trembling as he wiped tears from his eyes. Blackwell slapped him with the back of her hand. His face broke into a smile. That was for calling me a cow, she said, grinning to herself. Another roar made the cave tremble. Even though you've killed Scarth, Mr. Cranham, I don't think our problem is quite over yet. They cautiously approached a large, chamber-like cave. The roars grew louder and became more frequent. Then they heard a woman scream. Cambrum froze for just a moment. He had evidently recognised the voice. Gwyneth, I'm coming! He yelled before taking off. With an exasperated sigh, Blackwell followed. This man had a tendency to run off without her. However, as she entered the chamber, the sight was less than welcoming. She had found the Tanifa. It was bigger than seven trains on top of each other. Each limb was thicker than the tallest tree. Its entire body was covered in dark green scales and it had the face of a shark with a giant brow, an array of teeth, lizard eyes and a strangely humanoid neck. Its hands and feet were both webbed and clawed and each claw could slice solid rock like a hot knife through butter. Every step it made, the cavern shook like there was an earthquake. It had multiple fins down its back which continued onto its tail which was clubbed. Worst of all, in one of its pudgy reptilian's hands, it held a woman. She had bright red hair and her once fine dress was ripped, obviously injured by the massive beast that had her. It took a moment for Blackwell to realise that one of the woman's hands was missing and the stump bandaged. Albert! Oh my god, Albert! She cried to the tiny form that was Mr. Cranbrum racing towards the beast. Leave her alone! He howled and crazily kicked the beast's foot. The giant stopped and squinted down. Once he had spotted the man, he flicked his hand and Cambrum went flying, slamming into a wall, which most likely broke a few bones. Then it saw Blackwell. It put the woman down and leaned towards her, his eyes inches away from her face. Blackwell remained poised, even while feeling its rancid breath on her skin. You, it bellowed, are you the mother of my children born again? Blackwell took out her pistol and aimed it straight at the beast's pupil. Now that would be unlikely, she replied and fired. 
The eyes of a Tanifa were unsurprisingly its weakest point. They had the consistency of custard, yet the density of water. Dr. Blackwell had no knowledge of this until it splattered all over her dress. All she knew was that most animals were stopped by a well-aimed bullet through the eye. When she, Cambram, and his wife Gwyneth had exited the cave, gasping and covered in dead tannifar blood, she had her heartbeat back under control. She escorted them to the shoreline. We cannot thank you enough for what you've done, Dr. Blackwell. I just wish we could have saved the others, said Gwyneth weakly, who was looking a little pale from blood loss. I agree with my wife, said Cambram, beaming even as he tended her wounds. You can now consider us in your debt. Blackwell turned to face the two, brushing gore off her coat as best she could. There isn't really much you can do for me at the moment, Mr. Cambram, unless I want a boat blown up, she paused and considered. Actually, there may be something you can do for me. Oh, what would that be? Don't tell anyone about Mr. Scarth's uh, other side. Tell everyone he was eaten by the beast. I don't want this turning into an international conspiracy. Cambram saluted. You have my word, madam. Suddenly, the water offshore started to bubble. Without warning, a large shadow emerged from the depths. The husband and wife leapt back as if expecting the arrival of another Tanifar. But this new arrival was made of metal, and there were portholes and glimmering spirals etched on its surface. This was not an animal, however. It vaguely resembled a sea monster in both size and shape. It appears you are not the only one who knows how to navigate these waters, quipped Blackwell. A walkway extended from the side of the ship, and a small hatch was opened. What? What is that? asked Cameron, his eyes wide once again. Blackwell turned and smiled. The Ministry have powerful friends, Mr. Cameron. Friends more powerful than you can possibly imagine. She turned and proceeded down the walkway, but then stopped. It is rather odd, she called over her shoulder. But the name of the ship is the Tanifa. Don't you find that amusing? She gave a playful wave before disappearing inside the giant machine. The walkway retreated and the doors closed. The ship made an awfully loud noise and descended once again into the depths. And with that, Dr Blackwell said goodbye to New Zealand and could concentrate on how to keep her boots much cleaner. Lewis Hoban was born in a now-demolished hospital in Christchurch, New Zealand. He lives in a cold-in-the-winter part of his city, a few minutes away from his local library, which he visits regularly. In his spare time, he likes to sketch monstrous creatures and read books for hours on end. He always wanted to become an author, trying to write several novels at once. Making his first sale, this story, at age 14, has proven to be a big revelation for him. He can be found on Twitter as archivist underscore zero. Oh, right then, what's next? I believe dinner is at hand. Dinner? Why, bless my soul, look at the time. Right then, so... Shall we adjourn? We? 
I was thinking dinner. Together. I know a lovely little pie shop just a few blocks down. Actually, I was thinking of something more civilized. A bit of wine, a lovely pheasant, and then a spot of sherry with dessert. Really? Yes. Why do you seem surprised? It just doesn't seem like... you. Tosh, Welly. You still have a bit to learn about me. Oh, I enjoy a good pint and pasty now and again, but when the company warrants it, I can behave. Can you? No explosives or gunplay, I promise. The only knife I will use will be the one with my plate. Very well, then. Let's be off. Let's. This concludes Season 2 of Tales from the Archives. But keep an eye and an ear on this feed for upcoming announcements and interviews concerning our upcoming digital anthology, Ministry Protocol, Thrilling Tales from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, and the Ministry Initiative, a new role-playing game from Galileo Games. Season 3 of Tales from the Archives will resume in October 2013. We thank you all for listening and ask that you cast your nomination for your favorite podcast episode for the 2013 Parsec Awards at parsecawards.com. And of course, we ask that you stay tuned for the 2013 winter release of Dawn's Early Light, the third installment from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, published by Ace Books. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of The Janus Affair, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favourite bookstore, or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, the iBookstore, or the Science Fiction Book Club. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales in the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. The third installment from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, published by Ace Books. With a motherfucking <laughs> awesome cover. <laughs> I don't think we can say that. <laughs>